This is HR in Review, a podcast dedicated to HR thought leadership, actionable advice, and all the latest developments in human resource management. Hello, and welcome back. Today, we're talking about how HR teams can help their people deal with women's health issues. Ask the question because people will come forward, whether it be anonymous or not, but they'll come and share and, and explain about you know, what they're living with and also educate yourselves and, and to understand a bit more about what's going on. We'll also be looking into how to put employees in charge of their own well-being in the workplace. There's definitely a general trend now of people talking about this more, making it a board level priority and setting aside significant budget because they realise the the business costs and also the moral implications of investing in employee wellbeing. But before that, I'd like to introduce you to Susan Thompson, one of the founding members of Love Your Employee, which is a startup dedicated to employee wellbeing. Susan started her career in the financial services industry. For the first 28 years, she worked for two large blue chip companies. Then she moved to Nectar, which is a lead generation firm, and realised, along with the startup's founders, that employers needed a platform for their people's well-being, which is how Love Your Employee was started. Susan also teaches at the University of Edinburgh's Business School, and we started talking about how the worlds of teaching and management are quite similar. We're in a very privileged position when you're giving somebody feedback as a manager or a teacher that you can crush them or you can inspire them. And I really take that role. When I when I first started out, I come from a really poor a part of Edinburgh and I didn't used to use my address when I was applying for jobs because I thought they wouldn't they wouldn't hire me because of where I stayed and there is an awful lot of that whether it's um, your name your date of birth you know ageism whether it's you know bias thinking that somebody's too young to be able to do the job but you know, the, the young people that I teach, my gosh, they are amazing. I learn so much from them. And if you look at people like Greta Thunberg and Malala Yousafzai, these young people in our society are making such a difference. So mm-hmm. age isn't a barrier. And then equally on the other side, um, I'm in a, a different space now in my 50s, which I'm probably not comfortable in at all. Um, but you have you know, people, if I take the NHS sector alone, you have people like Beryl Carr, who was bored and started volunteering in her 80s. Mm. She now works within the NHS in her, and she's 100. Mm. And you have a nurse, Monica Bullman, 66 years as a nurse, and she only retired when she was 85. Mm. So I think I've learned in my career the age bias. Um, wow, it's such a debilitating thing. Um, I, I see people as onions and you know they've got layers of things to offer that you don't see from a CV or you know from a very start of a relationship but with a, with nurturing those those layers become really powerful things that they can um, have as individuals I love thanks <laughs> I love that people are like onions you mentioned breaking the bias that was also one of the international women's day slogans how do we get people to say okay so what if that person's 21 they are probably the right person for this job or so what if that person's 92 they're probably the right person for this job how do we get that thinking going follow us on twitter at hr review or join us on linkedin and facebook
it's it's a it's a controversial thing for me to say, but I think often um, HR and the processes that we use for hiring are a real barrier to talent. And and there's you know there's definitely a lot that we can do there. We've had eleven years pretty much teetering on recession and global financial crisis and wage stagnation and it's it's been really difficult to match candidates to jobs and it's it's all been cost driven so we're probably going to enter a really exciting phase now where the norms for the last 11 years are really disrupted um in terms of the pay that we're offering, in terms of gender reporting, um, in terms of diversity and being able to attract. So I, I think it's going to evolve naturally, hopefully, um, and make it actually an easier place for people to have their, their voices heard. Um, some of the best candidates, greatest people that I've had working for me haven't come via an algorithm. Mm. Um, you know and things like that to sieve out lots of CVs it's it's done by artificial intelligence but actually we need people at, at the forefront of um, seeing beyond a bad interview and, and actually you know understanding that that was nervousness or it would you know neurodiversity sometimes you can't answer the question as it is yeah yeah and actually neurodiversity is a great example if you look through history um at the people who have made a difference to humanity are often you know some kind of neurodiverse person and and to cancel and exclude that is to the detriment of your innovation and your evolving as a as a company and as a business yeah that's so true and I wonder what would you say are some of the worst processes within HR that could be changed because they're actually hampering bringing a more diverse workforce sometimes it's it's so many stages devolved from the actual business so you know you're using agencies who are using an agency and often our websites and things say one thing that this company is this, that, and the other, but that's not the experience when somebody starts. And it's uh, it's because there's so many people in the process. Somebody has taken five minutes to write a, a role profile, which doesn't actually reflect what the job is, and they've handed it on to a company that, you know, their maybe their procurement process only allows them to deal with a couple of agencies that agency's maybe gone out and sourced somewhere else. They have taken 80 CVs and narrowed it down to four or five. And somewhere in the pool of that 80 is actually the star that you need. And it might but, not be in the four or five. Yeah, yeah. And and the four or five have fit the bill in terms of the, they've ticked boxes or they've, they've got the right scoring. But actually, it's so devolved from the talent that you need for the, the job. So actually, we've done a story on this uh, on HR Review recently because we talked about how we should people should be ditching the whole CV and interview process and it should be more skills-based. But then how do you get that? Because obviously, I found that tough to understand how it would be actually implemented because how, like, how do you start from skills-based rather than CV? Because surely you want someone who actually has 
some link to organization or to its values yeah so so there is a place for testing there is a place for competencies um you know in terms of ability to do the job depending on what that role is and and testing um but the, the big thing that's missing is ethics and morals particularly when you're recruiting at management level and senior management level um you know the the leadership criteria and there's a big big deficit or a big hole in leadership you you don't test people's morals and ethics it's a difficult thing to do but it's not impossible and the company decisions profit is just not what a business is about these days um their role in society the, the bigger picture on what they contribute if you're only going to employ on the basis of being able to make money then we're never going to sort the climate issues you know the, the bigger things that that face us in society there, there's real room to innovate tweet at hr review and actually the other thing that we talk about a lot is that most people want to work for companies that are sustainable and actually Gen Z would rather not work for a company if it was did not have sustainable practices. Yeah, what it, what it tends to be um, in an interview process is maybe the tenth competency on a box, you know. Yeah. But it should be much higher up. It should be a much higher priority. Millennials and Gen Z are here. They're in our workforce, and you know that's who they want to work for. That's there's a bit of a mismatch, I think, between our boards our executive and the workforce that we we have now mm. and i think also all of that does add to an employee's well-being all round because you know if you're happy with how your company is being run if you're happy with um the morals and the ethics that your company has then you're more likely to enjoy working there because you feel like you're contributing to society if you're working for a company that's i don't know a gambling company for example who's preying on young people with no money that's not gonna give you job satisfaction is it because you know every day you're going into work and you're doing something that's terrible for society yeah there's there's a real a real mismatch and also from an individual point of view if you've got a company particularly for women if you've got a company that nurtures you and is engaged in your progress as not just a worker but as a a human you know you have somebody who's got your back and encouraging you and that you know that there's actually career paths there that are open to you not only are you happy day to day to come in but you've got aspirations to stay I think it's also about mentorship within companies isn't it because mentors can help female managers or middle managers become leaders simply with encouragement and also changing certain practices within the company for example meeting times and how meetings are run I I spoke to a man on this podcast of Steve Butler from um, Aspire Mm -hmm. and he said that in his company they've removed the masochistic culture that they had so when people came in everybody did a little well-being check or emotional check and so everybody talked about their own personal experiences rather than making money or competition with another employee everybody just had to come down to a very very emotional level and once they started doing that it became much better for people from diverse backgrounds became better for women because they didn't feel like they were in this you know male-oriented environment they felt like they were able to say well you know 
I had a bit of trouble with my kids at the weekend or a man was able to say, you know, like I had a bit of trouble with my kids at the weekend or, you know, someone could say that their mom was ill or some, something, you know, and it was just yeah. actually really, really good for the whole company to know what each person, what their one difficult thing that week was so that they could understand more and then it just made it a much more empathetic place. And, and that's a massive shift. So I've had an almost 40 year career and oh my gosh, at the start of my career, you never cry in the workplace. You would never, uh, you know, your feminine traits were, were hidden. And to hear men talk about emotion, which happens regularly now, is a really positive shift to talk about menopause, you know, real life things that happen uh, to us. It's, it's a completely different place from when I, I first started work, which is great. Um, and I have to say a couple of the best role models I've had in my career have been men because it's made me think differently. It's made oh, me really, oh, would I tackle that this way? Um, and it's not everything that they do isn't wrong. Everything that we do isn't right. And I think this working together has happened over the last um, 20, 30 years. And particularly in the last five to 10 years, there's a massive shift. There is, you know, organisations are much more diverse and it's for the better. Susan Thompson from Love Your Employee. If you have any comments on the HR and Review podcast, would like to suggest a topic or speaker, or provide other feedback, you can contact us using the email podcast at hrreview.co.uk. We look forward to hearing from you. Now, my next guest is Francesca Stein, who started work as a fertility nurse at a clinic in London. After almost 20 years there, Francesca wanted to move out of the private sector and joined Pepe just over a year ago. She's thriving, she says, by creating real solutions for people who are dealing with infertility and menopause. We also talked about endometriosis, which is a long-term condition that affects women, causing heavy periods. If left untreated, endometriosis could cause bowel issues, infertility, anemia, depression, weight gain, among a host of other health concerns. Francesca told me this is why she feels educating employers is important having to live with this and deal with this right up until they hit the menopause when they no longer menstruate so it's really really takes its toll on people and I think that's why we're trying to support and raise awareness as much as we can because often people don't talk about it because it's you know talking about periods and period pain is not something you know that women generally feel comfortable talking about and they don't know often that you know having a period that is really painful and really heavy is not normal so it's just not the subject is just not brought up. So we're just trying to raise awareness and support and, you know, and, and letting people know that it's not just, okay, you're diagnosed with endometriosis now, but it potentially will impact your fertility and your mental health. And actually, it's only recently that people have started to talk about endometriosis. I've heard all these really scary stories of people taking years before they're diagnosed, you know, two, three decades. People take a very long time before they're finally listened to and I wonder if that's because a lot of research is done by men and I don't think they always understand the impact of extremely heavy periods and extremely painful periods yeah I think I mean and I think more people are talking about it now so you know it, it often only takes a couple of people to come out and talk about it and say look I'm living with this this is what it's doing to me and other people say well yeah actually I've got it too and I think it's that's but yeah, there's not much research done in, you know, into the impact of 
menstruation and and periods. So I think you're, you're right there where you say that it's it's not always been looked at or talked about in the past. But I think it, there is a shift, and I think that there's there is a lot more people saying, look, you know, I live with this condition and I'm not ashamed, and and, and let's talk about it. What's interesting is Peppy's done some research and found that less than ten percent of employers offer endometriosis support for their employees. How can that possibly be? I mean, it's a condition that people say is like cancer. It ravages your body. So what is stopping employers from making that leap to supporting their employees with this condition? I think there's two things here. I mean, you're right when you say it's a condition that's similar to cancer. It, you know, it completely can impact the pelvic cavity and there's and it's incurable and, and you often need surgery to treat it or manage it. Um, so I think um, it's it, it, there's two things. People don't often want to talk about periods and period pain, especially in the workplace. So it may be employees, you know, are embarrassed to talk about the subject. So therefore the employers, you know, are not thinking about that they need to offer the support. Um, and again, it's, you know, I think with the employers itself, there's not, much support around there because again it's you know it's a subject that not many people want to talk about and I think men feel uncomfortable talking about periods for sure and I think we've seen that in, in some of the data and, and some of the studies that we've done is that men don't feel comfortable talking about periods so if you've got a male line manager or a, a male dominated business then it might be that the subject of painful periods and endometriosis is, is, is not broached so therefore you know, there's not that many organisations that will be supporting conditions such as endometriosis. Realistically, one in 10 people suffer. So there's going to be a whole heap of the workforce that are affected by endometriosis. That's ridiculous, though, isn't it? I mean, just because your line manager is male, it doesn't mean that they shouldn't be able to talk about endometriosis. I mean, I'm sure this isn't the case everywhere. So what mm. do we do then? How do we ensure that these conversations are had yeah i think the main thing is to raise awareness and to talk about them and and to start broaching the subject it is difficult you know i think men this is not anything against men of course but i think men predominantly haven't talked about these things and haven't needed to talk about these things before and it's a new area for them as well so we need to just you know raise more awareness talk about it more you know encourage people to to discuss it create supportive environments to have a support group you know particularly a, a, you know that talks about women's health issues potentially and that can you know, bring these subjects up and, and educate that is a, the key thing here because people just don't know there's still lots of people out there that you know don't know what endometriosis is or what the impact it has so you know so providing some education about what it is what it can do and why we need to support people do have it and when you say the impact it has i mean one of the impacts besides um the fertility issues and um a whole host of other issues like pain and heavy periods there's also mental health issues because people who have Mm. endometriosis could really suffer significantly both hormonally and also from the impact of the illness itself on their bodies yeah absolutely It's, it's, it's debilitating and to go through what you experience every month with the the menstrual side of it and then you know the, the surgery, the treatments, the not knowing, um, and, and just constant chronic pain. Um, yeah, it completely takes its toll. So I suppose one of the easier discussions to be had then is mental health. And perhaps maybe that would be one way of employers helping their employees with endometriosis, because it's a bit easier to talk about, maybe. That's true. There's, um, there's a lot more employers that do some support mental well-being there's a step in the right direction but obviously there's things that factor into our mental health and so endometriosis endometriosis will be one of those things 
What advice would you give to businesses who are looking to change their or revitalize their provision for staff? I think, you know, generally the first thing is, is, you know, ask your staff. We see it all the time. If you ask the question about, you know, what would you like to see or what, what is affecting you? And it can be anonymous and, and finding out what it is that the, the, the workforce needs and having these education and awareness sessions. So understanding these conditions, knowing a bit more about them and realizing actually what they do and the impact they have, it, it can really help. And then it can help, you know, you devise some sort of policy or workplace policy or, or in workplace environment that is more supportive of certain conditions. But I think ask the question because people will come forward, whether it be anonymous or not, but they'll come and share and, and explain about you know, what they're living with and also educate yourselves and, and to understand a bit more about what's going on because there's so many things out there that impact. And actually there is quite an easy fix is just you know, to be a bit more supportive and have flexible working workplace environment can really, really help. Francesca Stein from Peppy. Why not subscribe to the premium version of HR in Review? You'll get ad-free content, early and extra episodes and more. Even better, although it's the premium edition, it's absolutely free. Sign up at hrreview.co.uk slash podcast. Now let's hear from Harry Bliss. He founded his wellbeing company in 2018 when he was just 23 years old. He had worked at a healthcare provider and found it was not inclusive or accessible. Harry felt he could do better, so decided to create Champion Health. Harry was mentored by a friend who was a global director at a FTSE 100 company. But six months into Champion's creation, Harry's mentor took his own life, which Harry says stemmed from workplace stress. Harry told me his mentor James's legacy is what drives his business. So that's a part of our, our process as well. So we build wellbeing strategies for the organisation. A part of that is the CEO's making a pledge to their team and the leadership board signing up to a pledge that they're really going to drive positive well-being across the workforce and listen to their employees when it comes to their well-being needs so you're absolutely right there that that is vital and that's a big part of our process as well around that cultural shift as well you mentioned one-to-ones so we train up teams in how to have the one-to-ones and we also measure whether they are having one-to-ones and how effective they can be and then the final thing that you mentioned is that training for employees for leadership for line managers and again within the leadership hub there's a specific section which is around training from handling conflict at work through to supporting employees through the menopause how to and how not to have a conversation around mental health for example and we also have live sessions at champion and so you've got that human interaction as well and you mentioned that you left a previous healthcare provider to create your own what what was it that made you leave and what made you want to start something like this it was not inclusive and not accessible Um, and so when I started this conversation earlier I was saying that the champion mission is to make things more inclusive more accessible more engaging and really they were targeting the top one percent within the organization I really don't like the term the top one percent but they were looking at c-suite they were looking at directors well-being doing really big health checks on them and from a moral standpoint that just didn't sit right with me that we were value valuing some people's health and well-being above others dependent upon their salary brackets. And that was really the the mission for me was to create that Netflix of well-being whereby everyone has got access to well-being support to the world's best academics, to the world's best advice within one unified place. I mean, how open do you think our businesses to having uh, platforms like this? Not not just Champion, but any. Do you think that businesses since the pandemic have become more open 
to to it has it been easier for example in 2021 to convince them than it was in 2018 or we've had huge traction um i can't speak on behalf of of other providers um but we've had huge traction with well-being platforms because we need to look at the employee experience beyond the traditional working hours we need to look at it beyond working hours and to support their friends and family as well and that's something that champion have also launched around friends and family access at no extra charge for organizations and so the traction we've had has been extremely positive we have seen a change in that conversation over the last few years and organizations now realize that it's really important to focus on employee well-being um, within their employee value proposition but some organizations were incredible and they were prioritizing it before the pandemic for example so i wouldn't say that every organization is now focusing on it or people are focusing everyone's focusing on it more than they were before there's definitely a general trend though of people talking about this more making it a board level priority and setting aside significant budget because they realize the the business costs that we went through earlier and also the moral implications of uh, investing in employee well-being and companies that have been doing this for longer so before the the pandemic showed that the effects of burnout and and overworking was untenable have you found that those companies have more productivity and employees who are happier yeah so over time we do see trends and we see impact um, within those organizations so one piece of data for example states that 94 percent of employees value their organization more after providing a well-being platform to them 98 percent improve their understanding of their mental health and 93 percent improve their home and their work life so they're just three examples within there but if we also look at what the research um, is stating from the likes of Deloitte Thriving at Work reports, there's an average return on investment by looking at proactive well-being of five to one. There's an average return on investment if you look at organizational well-being of six to one. And if you look at reactive well-being, it's three to one. So all of those three areas should yield a positive return on investment off the back of what the research is all stating at the moment. And you said that previously, um, one of the companies that you were working with was focusing on C-suite and ensuring that their health and well-being was better um, based on their salaries, etc. What methods do you use to convince them that, I mean, everybody deserves this? I hope that we don't need to convince anyone um, as much as anything, because surely it's something that as a director, as a CEO, as a HR director, we know that it's the right thing to do. So there shouldn't need to be a huge amount of convincing with this. Um, But again, going back to that moral case, the legal case, the business case, it all stacks up within there. And so I think just putting together that point of view to your fellow board members or to your colleagues um, is a very powerful position to, uh, to sit within. And for me, again, it just comes back to predominantly that moral and social case of it's the right thing to do for our employees, and that will then lead to really positive impacts of reduced staff turnover, of improved retention, aiding recruitment strategies all the way through to enhanced productivity as well. And um, recently you've done some research uh, around employee burnout and mental health. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so our annual flagship report went live earlier this week and it's been downloaded by thousands of HR directors, which has been, been incredible. And it's data that like we've never seen before, and so data from hundreds of organizations looking at, again, all areas of their well-being from mental health all the way through to sleep, the impact that sleep is having on performance, all the way through then to musculoskeletal health, for instance. And it's all data from the last year. So it's very up to, uh, up to date within there. And it can really help organizations start to see trends within other workforces, for example. So one of the big areas that's been fascinating is looking at what employees want to change as a first. 
So we know that 94% of employees want to make health changes, which is quite remarkable, first of all. But the changes aren't always to mental health, and the majority of our budgets are being allocated towards mental health. The top three is their energy levels and levels of tiredness, their activity levels, and their managing their weight status as well. So it's really important to look at the employee wants within there. But then if we correlate that with what employees need as well, and what they're saying is impacting their day-to-day -day productivity, it's areas such as tiredness and lethargy that are the major areas and burnout, for example. So again, a lot of this data, there are thousands of pieces of data that we've collated, um, and you can access that all through the Champion website in the Insights section. Um, it is a long read, um, but you can get to sections very quickly if you're wanting to make a case around musculoskeletal health or mental health. You've got all of that first-party data within this flagship report. Um, and finally, I found that quite interesting that most people felt energized to work at uh, 20 past 10 and um, mm. were least energized at half past three. Um, and we have been learning quite a lot about flexible working and how it's quite beneficial to just let people work when they feel like it. I mean, what are your thoughts around that? So it depends on the organization um, and where the organization wants to progress. Um, for us, for me as a CEO, we want flexible working. But for some organizations, it doesn't work that well. Um, so it is very much, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. It's depending upon what employees are requiring and how that's going to impact upon the business performance going forwards as well. But what the data is showing, as you say, 20 past 10 is when people are most productive. So if we can block out those times to do the really important tasks, and that deep work that we know is then going to yield huge returns in terms of productivity. That's something that we would strongly encourage. And then looking at half three for the things that actually encouraging walks, for example, at those times to reduce the lethargy, but also to have the meetings that aren't absolutely essential. And you're making big calls at half three because we know we're having slumps within the workforce then. So looking to just create a daily architecture for people and for our environment and our culture around the times when people are most productive versus when people are most fatigued is, is absolutely vital as well. Oh, I find that quite interesting. So you could have um, walking meetings at half past three. So it's a double whammy. Exactly that. So that's what I do personally. Um, may not work for everyone, but we also may look to just encourage nutrition plans, for example, for individuals and put recipes in front of them to try out for lunch. Um, or raise the awareness around that because often our lunches contain white bread. We know that white bread leads to slumps in the afternoon and productivity losses. Mm -hmm. So there are some really small things that we can do around education and awareness. And there are some big things as well that we can do around uh, constituting walking meetings or moving meetings, we'd rather say, to be more inclusive as well. That was Harry Bliss, the CEO of Champion Health. Now, my friends, that is all we have time for today. But I hope you've enjoyed listening to my guests as much as I love talking to them. Most of all, though, I hope you learned something today. The HR and Review podcast is brought to you by hrreview.co.uk. hrreview.co.uk is a website dedicated to human resources and related professionals. News items are posted daily together with analysis looking in-depth at topical HR issues. You can sign up for our range of specialist newsletters at hrreview.co.uk slash sign up and follow us on Twitter at HR Review or join us on LinkedIn and Facebook. Thank you for listening.